0: Welcome back to season two of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately 60 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships too and partners of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let me bring in this week's guest. With us today is a senior portfolio manager focused on the credit asset class for a leading state retirement system. Post-college and business school, this gentleman spent time as an accountant and banker before moving into high-yield research at payne Webber in the mid-'90s. He covered high-yield as a portfolio manager at several institutions before moving to Arizona in 2009 to join the Arizona State Retirement System. He is now their senior fixed-income portfolio manager and is the architect of their credit asset class. With over ten billion in commitments across twenty-five partnerships and an enviable track record. Without any further ado, let me introduce this week's HPS cast guest, Al Alimo, Senior PM at Arizona State Retirement. Al, welcome to the pod.
1: Uh, thank you, Colbert.
0: Al, let me start from the top. Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Rochester, New York.
0: Got it. And so then Syracuse seems like a natural move for you uh, for college. And after Syracuse, you ended up in accounting. What drew you to that field now?
1: Well, I had a lot of job offers and it seemed like a great place to begin a career, at least so I was told by all the accounting firms who interviewed me. And I worked for one of the old big eight accounting firms, Deloitte Haskins themselves, in uh, New York City office in the World Trade Center. You make the move after a couple of years of accounting to banking, and you end up in
0: high-yield research at Payne Weber and then Bank of America through the 90s. Tell me about the appeal of high-yield after your time in accounting.
1: I got attracted to working on Wall Street from my accounting experience. I was working for Deloitte in the Trade Center, and they had a specialty of auditing securities firms. So I spent almost a year working on the audit of Kidder Peabody which in the 1980s was a pretty reputable investment banking firm. You
0: and I are dating ourselves by knowing Kidder Peabody. Yeah, keep going. exactly.
1: <laughs> I had to explain uh, who Kidder Peabody was. So, yeah. but back in the mid 80s, they were they were you know pretty pretty good investment banking firm. And what I got to do is I, I got to audit different areas of their business, including their compensation. And what I saw was, like, the head of their m M&A and department made a multi-million-dollar bonus one year. And for me, coming from you know working-class background, I was shocked by that. It was if this person won the lottery every year. I said, I've got to get into this field. I've got to get on Wall Street. And I had an opportunity through a man I worked for at First Chicago, who had been in the high-yield business and a senior person at Merrill Lynch for a number of years, and. Through his initiative, he introduced me to a number of people in New York, including at Bear Stearns and at Payne Weber, and I got offers from both firms, one to do banking at Bear Stearns, the other to do research at Payne Weber. And what attracted me to research was it was kind of your own business. If you develop a following from your research, you kind of made a name for yourself, and then that was a transportable business, meaning you, you had a reputation that you then became a known quantity that... Other investment firms would bank on you to work for them.
0: So you you did that through the 90s, and in 2001, you make the move to Seneca Capital Management in San Francisco. Was it just the time for you to to make the move to the principal side, or what drove that decision for you?
1: Yeah, my, my wife is from the West Coast. She's from Arizona, actually. And I had no appreciation for life out West until I met her. And so what I did was I went to the senior people at Bank for America. And I said, I wanted to move out west for lifestyle reasons. Um, I'd been on the sell side of high yield for about eight years, publishing research. And I was, I was really, frankly, tired of it. And I said, well, could you help me find a position with, with one of our institutional clients? And they literally got on the phone. And within a week, I had two job offers, one with Seneca in San Francisco, the other with AIG in Los Angeles. And then we decided to move to San Francisco because it's really a fun city to live in. And I started as a research analyst there, covering certain industries. And eventually I moved into a position as head of research, then ultimately as a portfolio manager.
0: So after your time at Seneca, you then make the call to move to the Arizona State Retirement System. It sounds like your wife might have had some influence in the decision, but tell me about that opportunity and how that all came up.
1: So, you know, in the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, Basically, my old firm blew up in the credit crisis, so I had an opportunity then to move to Arizona, which was what my wife and I wanted to do from a cost of living standpoint, being close to family to raise our kids, close to their, their relatives. We decided to move to Arizona, and at the time I moved to the Arizona State Retirement System, they really didn't have any investments in credit. So I think what they saw from my background was someone who had a really strong background in credit and and they maybe had a kernel of interest in that and getting more involved in credit. And they saw me as someone who could probably build that opportunity for them. Okay, so then
0: let's start from the beginning in Arizona. When you started, what was your first job there?
1: My first job was really managing an internal portfolio of investment grade bonds, which is frankly something I'd never done before. It was managing U.S. treasuries, agency mortgage-backed securities, investment-grade corporates, a little bit of CMBS. And I still do that, but now maybe it's 10% of my time. When I first joined the retirement system, it was probably 90% of my time. And when you've
0: evolved in your remit there and you've taken on new responsibilities, where are you spending your time these days? How do you focus your time today?
1: I focus almost all my time on our credit portfolio. We built out a credit asset class over a number of years that's centered around private market investing. And the majority of that is in private debt. If you looked at our overall portfolio, we have, as you mentioned earlier, about $10 billion of commitments and about close to $9 billion now in the ground as well invested in partnerships. And these partnerships range from private debt where we have maybe two thirds to 75% of our investments to distressed debt strategies, both in the US and Europe, then also in other category called other credit, which tends to be things that are not private debt, it's not distressed debt, but it's, it's performing credit. Uh, it tends to be things like leasing, and some other categories like life settlements.
0: So you mentioned private credit and as an asset class that started to really grow immediately post financial crisis, you know, right when you started as Arizona. When you think about private credit or direct lending. When did you start considering it for an allocation, and how do you think about how that fits in your broader credit portfolio?
1: We we added an allocation to it to our total fund allocation in two thousand and twelve at the suggestion of our consultant, uh, NEPC. They're our macro consultant hired by our board. One thing I learned from being a high yield analyst, both on the sell side and the buy side, were the flaws with the tradable high yield and bank loan markets. So the flaws being lack of information advantage from the participants, the limited information that came from the companies who were issuers, the poor quality of underwriting by the investment banks, the lack of access that the sell-side research analysts had. And that information disadvantage is pervasive in the tradable loan markets. And frankly, it's gotten worse over the years because of What came about, I think, in the late 1990s, which is called REG-FD, which means fair disclosure to all investors, which is great for public market investors, but basically means you have few opportunities for competitive advantage when it comes to information. I always think REG-FD
0: had dramatic unintended consequences. It, It came from a good place, right? It was intended to make sure that some investors weren't advantaged over others, but all it meant was that you got a lowest common denominator disclosure for everybody.
1: That's exactly right. So one key advantage of private market investing and private debt investing is the availability of full due diligence, meaning that the manager who manages the loans for us and makes all the investment decisions and does all the due diligence, typically has full access to the private information of that borrower to make an investment decision. You can get multiple different valuation opinions. You can use consulting firms to go in and do specialized due diligence or provide industry information. You can hire an accounting firm to do an accounting review of the company. So the, the information advantage to a private market investor is substantial over someone trading in the public market.
0: Al, let, let me ask you something a bit about manager selection. You know, it's a huge part of your job is picking the right firms to deploy capital on your behalf. How do you do it well? What makes a good manager in your estimation?
1: We look for people with experience within their asset class. So we look for leaders in specific markets. And we look for people who, who have experience investing in that, Asset class, hopefully through a cycle, who have strong origination capabilities that you could look towards. And strong origination capabilities are important because it leads to stronger deal flow, which allows the investment manager to be more selective on the deals they do. So, the more deals they see that are credible deals that they were going to be looking at, not just thrown out to the whole world, but thrown out to that investment firm and maybe only a couple of others. The more deals they see, the more likely they're going to be able to be selective on those transactions and also be in a negotiating position to get better terms and better structure.
0: Yeah, you always want the funnel to be as big as possible. Yeah,
1: you want the funnel to be as big as possible. And you also want those investment firms to have workout capabilities because. When you hold a position in the private markets, you hold it through the cycle. You hold it through a restructuring that might happen, which you, you want to avoid, but eventually, it's typical that a company in your portfolio will go through some type of stress. A restructuring might be necessary. And you want a firm that's got capabilities and experience in restructuring companies and trying to maximize the value through that restructuring for the investor.
0: So we're coming to you from the fall of 2020, obviously the world's in the midst of a global pandemic and COVID has had a profound impact on financial markets globally. How has your portfolio held up through this pandemic that we're we're living through currently?
1: Yeah, we outperformed uh, considerably through the first and second quarter of this year. Our credit portfolio outperformed probably about two and a half to 3% versus our benchmark. And our benchmark is the tradable leverage loan index, the S&P LSTA leverage loan index, Plus. 2.5% 2.5% per annum illiquidity premium, so we have to earn at least 2.5% before even earning the return of the benchmark for the Lever's Loan Index. And we outperformed by 25 to 3% during the first and second quarter. And the reason why I mentioned that period is because the first quarter, our benchmark, the Lever's Loan Index collapsed and was down roughly 10% or more, and then it recovered quite a bit in the second quarter. And through that period, we were pretty steady throughout. Our credit program was designed to have limited volatility and it was down overall, including our private debt, including distress and other credit, was down a little over 2% in the first quarter and it was up close to three in the second, while the, the index was down double digits and then up double digits in the second quarter. So we had pretty steady performance while the index moved around substantially, and we outperformed through that period.
0: I'm curious, and and Lord knows I don't need any names, but but thinking of individual managers in your portfolio, I imagine some managers have done better than others. And I'm curious if you've observed what you've observed in those who have managed well through this difficult period versus those who have struggled.
1: I would say generally all of our managers did pretty well. Well, we've had weakness in our overall credit portfolio is in the tradable distressed market. And I'd say the tradable distressed market, and this is my opinion, is the most overrated market in credit. Even today, even with all the opportunities that have arisen. And that's because of this information disadvantage that investors in the tradable market have and consistently have. Doesn't matter how good they are, they're always gonna be operating uh, with an informational disadvantage in the tradable markets. And also, I think that even the opportunity has become much broader with the economic turmoil caused by COVID. It's still heavily concentrated in industries like energy and retail. And you've also had this big compression in yields where the high yield market is yielding 55 to 6%. That includes the distressed names. So you have limited return opportunity even in the current opportunity set. And then the, the distressed investors in the tradable market, what they do is they go and they buy a bond or a leverage loan at a discount, say 60 cents in a dollar, and they hope to recover, say 80 two years time frame or one to two years time frame, go through a workout. And what happens is they they go through this process and often the process is delayed. It goes on a lot longer than they think it was going to or planning on it. And that affects the the IRR, the investment. And a great example of that is TXU. TXU in the last credit cycle, so following the 2008-2009 credit crisis, was probably the biggest opportunity of distressed investors in the tradable market. It was, it was a huge buyout, very complex capital structure, different areas to exploit. And it was a very extended bankruptcy process, multi-year period that dragged out the potential return of the investors because they didn't realize the exit when they were hoping to and didn't realize as high of a value as they were hoping to. And then there's one other kicker that makes tradable distress more volatile than you want it to be. And that is in a lot of situations, the exit, you get a stub equity in a public market stock. So TXU is now Vistra Energy. which which is a tradable equity. What happens is a lot of those equities that come out of a bankruptcy are ignored by the street. They're not followed well on a research side. You end up with equity, and that leads to volatility because you can't cash out when you wanted to. So you basically have this back-end equity in the tradable distress market at some element in your portfolio, and that always creates volatility that we, we don't like.
0: Well, and the other thing I'd add to that, you know, from our perspective, the degradation of the quality of public company docs and public lender docs has allowed opportunities for us to deploy capital into stress and distress situations because of the ability to, you know, carve out a basket or some sort of in- investment under subsidiaries. All of that typically comes at a disadvantage of a tradable, you know, as you say, information disadvantaged party. So you, you, know, you sort of get it a couple different ways from that that asset class. It gets it gets tricky. That's interesting. So given where we are uh, in the world right now, what is your posture? Are there asset classes you're looking to add to? How how do you react into these moments of volatility?
1: We are expanding our commitments in private debt. We think the majority of the private credit market opportunities that are out there, whether it's private debt or some niche markets like risk-sharing transactions, they've all been repriced a little higher, meaning better yield, better return expectation for the investor, Um, better terms, meaning the maybe better covenant package, less leverage in the structure, basically allows the investor to take less risk with higher return. And we're seeing that with all of our private debt managers in particular in the US and in Europe are seeing higher yields on individual deals, maybe by 100, 150 basis points more than pre-COVID, better deal terms, more equity from the sponsor, better structural protections in the documents, better covenants, et cetera.
0: Let me ask you one last question before we move on to best ideas, just some advice. If I'm a young executive, Al, who looks at your success, what advice would you give me? What are your lessons learned along the way of your career?
1: I think that what I learned over the years is don't pretend to be smarter than the market. If you think you're smarter than the market, you're going to get burned ultimately.
0: I think that's I think that's very good advice. And I think that related to that, as you and I saw in the last financial crisis, it's that just because you're smart and good at one thing doesn't mean you're smart and good at everything. All right, Al, let me move to the last segment of the podcast. And as listeners know, this is something we like to call best ideas. And this is where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently. We call it best ideas because as investors, we only hope to add good ideas to the portfolio, but our goal is always to size up and maximize exposure to our best ideas. So Al, As our guest, I'm going to ask you to go first. What's your best idea this week?
1: My best idea is really something you can't do right now, but in the long run really enriches my life and my family's life. And that is international travel. It's what I look forward to most in life. I've been fortunate to have traveled to about 40 countries, and most of those I've been to multiple times. That's great. Can you
0: give me a particular spot out of those forty destinations that you've been to that you can't wait to get back to when the world opens up again?
1: yeah, I, I, my wife and I have and our family have been thinking about going to Sicily. We've traveled extensively throughout Europe, including Italy, and I'm very intrigued by going to Sicily, which is where my grandparents are from. It's got a mix of you know the Italian culture, but also, It's been conquered so many times over its history that it has influence from the Greeks as well as the Romans. So there's incredible history there. There's great food. There's La Dolce Vita, Italian culture. You can relax in the Mediterranean. I don't think it gets any better than that.
0: Great. Well, I'm going to give you my best idea then. I've never been to Sicily and I can't wait to go. But my best idea, as, as listeners know, I like to be inspired by the guests for my best idea each week. And my inspiration this week is actually off of yours. You mentioned Sicily. I'm going to talk to you about a TV show that is set in Naples. So not exactly in Sicily, but right next door. The television show that I love, that I highly recommend, is called Gomorrah, as in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Gomorrah is about the Neapolitan drug trade. It's based on a book written by an investigative journalist. So it's all based on true stories. And it's a remarkable TV show. It's all filmed in and around Naples. It's beautifully shot. The production values are just enormous. And it's this incredible story about rival drug gangs and sort of the history of the Neapolitan drug trade. I highly recommend it. Uh, You can stream the first two seasons online. The third season, appropriately, given we've been talking about Distressed, the third season's actually tied up in the Weinstein estate. So it's um, it's not available online yet. But if you enjoy any sort of crime-driven TV shows, I promise you Gamora is one of the all-time greats. And I'll end with this story. It's subtitled, obviously, it's in Italian. And I was talking to a friend of mine from Milan about it. And I said, oh, did you watch it? And they said, yeah, you know, everybody in Italy did. It was a huge phenomenon. And I said, oh, must have been nice watching it without subtitles, to which they responded, no, no, I, I watched with subtitles. I couldn't understand a word they were saying. Apparently, the Neapolitan dialect is a language unto itself. So my best idea this week, then, in honor of your travel destination of choice of Southern Italy, is the television show *Gomorra*. With that, then, it's time to say goodbye for the week. Truly appreciate you taking the time, Al. Your insights into the credit market are always interesting. And thank you for coming on. Thank you, Culver. Thanks again to our guest, Al Alana. Check out our show notes to learn more about Al and the work he does for the Arizona State Retirement System. This podcast was brought to you by At Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to
1: listen.